TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. When you're listening to HBS After Hours, I'm Young Me, and I'm here tonight with me here and Felix. How are you guys hey, doing today? Hey, good. How are you? Yeah. So I'm glad to be here with you tonight because in a week or so, we are going to be taping a live version of oh, this yes. podcast <laughs> with a bunch of alum who are going to be here on campus. For their reunion, that. right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So we need ideas for yes. what we're going to do at that time. Absolutely. So to anyone listening out there, if you have an idea for a topic you would like us to discuss yeah. in this live podcast, send it in. Our email address is hbsafterhours at gmail.com. And yes. by the way, we've got a bunch of email. At some point in this podcast, you know, we, we should, should, you bring some, we should yeah, go yeah, some yeah, in. And, and thanks anyway for everyone who writes. Yeah, it's really, such nice yeah. email. It's really, really yeah. helpful. But really also good. some great ideas as well. Yeah. And so at some point we should go through and do all of that. It's also for the alum thing, it's topics, but also format. Like, should we yeah. do something kind of weird or, yeah. I don't know, in a classroom setting? Is there something that we could you do? You should sing. <laughs> we should do karaoke. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> karaoke podcast. Yeah, as long as everyone's there doing it. That's the evening yeah. program. Yeah, that's the super. That's the late night. That's the. Yeah. Okay, so I brought in a topic I want us to talk about tonight, and the topic is vaping. Believe it or not, and then Mahir, you also brought in a topic. Okay, Mahir, why don't you get us started? So John Dickerson, who I think is an incredible journalist, has written this piece on The Atlantic, which basically argues that the job of the presidency, and it's not a political argument, it's, it's not about who the president is, it's an argument that the job of the presidency has just expanded and become completely unwieldy. We associate a set of expectations with that job that are emotional, that are you know, commander-in-chief, that are healer-in-chief, and inevitably the person in that job is getting crushed under the weight of expectations. And the neat thing about the piece is it's got a lot of historical stuff, you know, like Grover yeah, Cleveland. Interesting. Yeah. You know, Grover Cleveland used to open his <laughs> own door. He used to open the front door at the White House. Just completely imaginable, unimaginable today. Um, but the numbers are also staggering. So there are 2 million people who work in the executive branch. And just in the office of the presidency, there's several thousand. It's a mammoth operation. Yeah. You go from campaigning into administrating in 90 days. You are now in charge of this massive budget, massive organization. I think even thousands of positions, appointments, political appointments to make. And so 
when you kind of think of it that way, you realize, wait, what are we expecting these people to do? And is it is it a reasonable thing to expect? If I'm totally honest, I didn't really buy it. Yeah. I mean, my starting position with Walmart has 2 million people. And they're a very global organization, which presumably adds to the complexity of managing the organization. And I think at the heart of what we're seeing is a very strong political incentive to make it look like you're in charge. Rewarded for activism, you're rewarded for being the person who's there when the catastrophe hits, the person who's there in the big trade negotiations. As a rule, we see the president all the time. And that exposure, when you think about it, much of it is fabricated. To the appointments, there's always the possibility to just leave people in place. If you decide to replace hundreds and thousands of people, that's your decision. So my sense is much of the activism that we see, what he describes as, oh my God, no one can do this job, is actually completely under the control of what the person wants to do. I think the reluctance to delegate that he describes that was in the piece, you don't buy that, that, that is a choice. Yeah. You know, I'm the commander in chief. Do I really need like the daily briefing that that yeah. he talks mm-hmm. about? Mm-hmm. You could easily imagine delegating that to someone and have really clear rules around when you want when you to be personally to be. involved. That is a choice that you want to spend that hour or however long the briefing takes every day. Yeah. What did you think, Yomi? I did buy the article. I think the part that struck me the most was when they talked about the complete inability to construct strategy when, in fact, you're always being forced to be reactive. You're always reacting and you're moving from crisis to crisis. Right. We would never run any other organization this way. But, I mean, let me take Felix's point. Yeah. Though. Doesn't the CEO of Walmart have this issue? Like there's a store that just went on fire or something. No, but <laughs> and, and, and there's it, a strike there's somewhere. A strike. I mean, there it, what's different it, about this? So what's different about this, so first of all, it's not that you come into office and you have – a strategy. You have to have multiple strategies. You have to have a strategy for healthcare. You have to have a strategy for the economy and yep. so on and so on and mm-hmm. so on. And some of these things I think you've probably spent some time thinking about at a kind of relatively high level. But once you're in office, on each one of these things, there's a learning that has to happen for you to figure out how you can actually begin to execute against that strategy, as you begin to know how the institutions work and how the relationships work and all the rest of it. And so it's hard for me to imagine how you can be effective and delegate from day one unless you just make the decision as the chief executive officer of the country to just focus on one or two things for your entire presidency. But then we're essentially saying that we are comfortable with a system where every president we elect, we expect them to just move the needle on one or two things. And it feels like right now our country has too many important problems across too many domains for us to be able to afford to do that. But that's also true in a big corporation, right? You worry about the different divisions. You worry about the different product, the different countries. There's just a lot to worry about. And I think the way they deal with it is that they delegate. Like one of my favorite examples how much time presidents spend taking credit for what happens in the economy. (laughs) When we all know, (laughs) you know, like that's just 
a waste of time. You should not be doing that well, because a it's not you doing yeah. it. But there's yeah. a political imperative. There is political theater. That, right. But that's that's my. But point. that's not it's a choice. Not, that's not a choice in this setting, Felix. That but, that's the game they have to play, isn't it? I mean, you can say don't do it, but then the reality is no. You could imagine a president who says, and by the way, we have a fabulous, fabulous Federal Reserve, and they do what needs to get done. Even the reluctance of presidents to give credit to anyone else is yeah. just astounding to me. Yeah, I agree. But I think you're conflating two things. So one is, do we have a history of having presidents who are just ineffective managers, leaders, whatever you want to call them? Yes. Do they maybe spend their time inefficiently? Yes. Do they refuse to delegate? Yes. All those things are true. But imagine the ideal executive. Okay. Someone who was really great at all of these things, and you put them in the role, could they do it effectively? I'm not sure they could. So there is another anecdote in there that they described this amazing document that yep. Romney's transition team <laughs> yeah, put together. It's fantastic. Yeah. Describing the process Romney would go through to make this transition like beautifully efficient and bring all this corporate best practice. And I remember when I read that anecdote, I was laughing internally because I thought to myself, if he had been elected and they'd gone in there with full confidence with this beautiful plan, they would have been confronted with reality, I think, within the first week. Just And it wouldn't have worked. And I think they would have hit wall after wall after wall. Yeah. So you buy this argument in part, I right? Do. So tell me. So what's what, your sense of me here? You have no I started with your point of view and I found myself swayed to young me's, which is I don't find like this place is different kind of arguments very useful. Like I think, look, this is a CEO and what's different. But I do think the political pressure that CEOs don't have to deal with, the public role that CEOs don't have to play, the unwillingness to delegate, because delegation has got to be the answer. But he makes the case that delegation isn't possible. You can't because every decision refracts back to you. But those are choices, right? Well, I, that is, I think, the core of the argument, which is this delegation question. Yeah. I yeah. think the other argument that I think is maybe true, which is the difference with the CEO's thing, I think is think about a C-suite. But I think about like a business unit heads, yes. right? Yeah. So business unit heads are like cabinet departments. Yeah. But there is this C-suite. And the C-suite is very helpful to the CEO, like a COO, right? I mean, daily operations yeah. are happening in a certain yeah. way. CFO is doing certain things. CMO, whatever it is. The thought that was triggered in my mind is maybe that's the problem, you know, which is we have these 24 cabinet posts. There's nobody who's really... But just think about this. When you encounter a CEO who has 24 direct reports... It, yeah. Mm -hmm. you, you yeah. Just, yes. I mean, yeah. come on. That's ridiculous. Right. So that's we need, ridiculous. I think we so need that C-suite. <laughs> but don't you think we need it, like a C-suite? I mean, yeah, could maybe, you but, imagine? But on top of that, a corporation is designed to enable the company to be led. Whereas when you look at the presidency, we've set up a system of checks and balances, yeah. which is essentially designed to make sure that executive office doesn't have yeah. too much power. Yeah. Right. And so we've built in a set of constraints on behavior. And then you layer on top of that the complexity, the bureaucracy, all the rest. Yeah. So what would you change? You get to wave your magic wand. Felix, what do you think? Or do you not change anything because you don't think it's a problem? Or you just get I, CEOs to... I don't think it's much of a problem. In fact, this is, the, of course, the old discussion. If I imagine a government that will get twice as many things get done, should I be optimistic about that? Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. 
I grew up in a political system yeah. where it's even much more difficult to get things done. And most people would say the reason why Switzerland is rich because the politicians don't get anything done. What do you say, young me? I don't know. If this were a corporation, you could reorganize no, it. No, no, you you get could... to, you, you're in charge of the world. You get to do whatever. Of the whole world? The world. Yeah, yeah, meaning, no, of the president. Meaning America, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Sorry, sorry. Let's not get carried away. You get, to, you, get to, you get to redraw the organizational chart. You get to, like, redraw all the job descriptions. What do you Could do? Could you break up America? Well, that's a separate interesting question. Is that what you think the answer is? Well, I mean, it would just create some new degrees of freedom. That's if a super you had interesting question. Republics yeah. all under this larger, and you had a looser confederation of regions. And you could so have maybe that's the problem. The Northeast region, and you could have. It's interesting the West. when you describe the analogy. You say, "Oh, it's the ministries that are, you know, the equivalent to business divisions." But you could think it's the states, mm-hmm. or it's the yeah. communities. Yeah, that, yeah. I so, would go bigger than states, though. By the way, do you, out of curiosity, in a hundred years, will the United States be a singular country? Is this where we're going with the podcast? Okay, sorry. I, wouldn't, I just saw it's an um, interesting question because you, you, you're kind of saying that maybe I the problem is— I find it a is, really intriguing question, right? Because there's movement in different parts of the country to— I mean, I these, these economies are so large, right? I mean, California yeah. is just yeah. an enormous yes. economy just by and of itself. Yep. Yep. I thought where you were maybe heading is that maybe that's where we go, and yep. I don't know the answer yep. to that. I'll give you my little What's solution. Your, yeah. I don't really have a solution. I think the C-suite thing may be good, like these C-level officers— the thing that made me think about is in India, there is a presidency and there's a prime ministership. Mm-hmm. And this also reminds me a little bit about the UK where there's a monarch and then there's a prime minister. So in a Trump way – Trump would like being king. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in general, I'm an anti-monarch. I don't believe in those things. But there is this sense in which all the healing and the core emotional function that a leader has Mr. to provide president. in India is done kind of by the president. Uh-huh. And in the UK, obviously, it's kind of done by the monarch. Big thoughts. Okay, guys, I want to talk to you about vaping. So, as you probably know, smoking cigarettes has been on the decline in this country. And I think the decline has been most noticeable among adolescents. So it's really gotten to the point where smoking among adolescents, it's not even a thing really anymore. On the other hand, e-cigarettes, vaping is on the upswing. And in particular, a company called Juul, J-U-U-L, is currently regarded as almost sort of the apple mm-hmm. of vapes. This very cool, fashionable device, it looks like a little USB stick that if you go into many high schools today, the kids are all vaping. So I recently got a note from the school that my son goes to. It went out to all the parents, and it's about vaping. And my sense is that many, many schools across the country are getting these alarming notes about the prevalence of vaping. And this note is all about how this thing is taking over, how dangerous vaping is. So I... Got this letter. I went to my son, and I said, so how common is this? And he looked at me, and he said, oh, everybody vapes. You cannot walk into a school bathroom now without saying everybody vaping. So first of all, I wanted to get your reactions. 
Is this something that we should be worried about? They're inhaling nicotine, so there's nicotine in these vapes, but not a lot of the other toxins associated with cigarettes. Yeah. So can you say something about the side effects? What do we know about the health implications? So here's the thing. I mean, the health community is really divided. Yeah, okay. Because if you use cigarettes as a comparison point... Vaping, I think it's universally agreed that vaping is much, much, much safer. safer right? yeah. Because, in fact, nicotine is not carcinogenic. Nicotine does not cause cancer. It's all the other stuff. and It's the yeah. tar and the other stuff in cigarettes yep. that cause cancer. So it's just highly addictive. But it well, is. Addi- and we don't even know how yeah, highly addictive. Addic- we don't know how highly. But okay. the argument oh, is that okay. it creates a dependency. In particular, adolescents might be more vulnerable yeah. because their brains are still developing. I had a strong reaction to this article you circulated, this uh, Gia Tolentino article from The New Yorker. I think it sounded absolutely fantastic. I mean, this is like a massive public health <laughs> innovation, which is it is our best chance at wiping out cigarette smoking. And the number of deaths per year is in, still incredible, by the way. And this is like the best technology. The from cigarette smoking. From right? cigarette smoking, yes. yeah, from traditional yeah. tobacco products. Yeah. So first, I'm like, this is like a huge public health boon. And then second, if I think by analogy— and the natural things to think about are marijuana and sugar. So marijuana we're legalizing. You can agree with that or disagree with it, but yeah. we're, we're legalizing it. And then second, I don't know how different this is than sugar. Sugar is highly addictive. It's got a lot of problems. Health-wise, it has massive consequences. We don't do anything about that. And so I did not come away from that article or other articles yeah. with a sense of like, oh, my God, there's a problem. To the contrary, I felt like we could screw this up by demonizing something that could just be wonderful. So I don't know. I, I was surprised because when I first talked about vaping, I was like, oh, this is bad and bad for my kids and blah, blah, blah. But as a society. <laughs> so even as a parent. Well, I don't want my kids to vape. <laughs> just to be clear, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, no, no, seriously. I, look, I don't want my kids to like do a lot of different things, but I get to control that or try to control that. But do I want it banned? Which, by the way, will only have the perverse effect of wanting making kids want to oh, do yeah. it even more. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I came, yeah. at the, came yeah. out of this <laughs> reading like feeling like, my God, vaping is the best chance we've ever had to wipe out smoking. Yeah. And we're going to screw it up because of some paranoia on ill-founded science, which is not clear or conclusive. Yeah. So my reaction was twofold. One, one was I looked at some pictures online. It's both an activity and it's a cultural moment also. I had to laugh because it reminded me in a way the 1950s Marlboro Man. (laughs) You know, it was also smoking, but it was not just about the smoking. It was about this entire culture and how people think about themselves and think about their lives. And, And so I think in part, I'm not surprised that it's growing so quickly because it has all these ingredients also, which then says you are really, really uncool if you don't do it in high school, and so on. So so that was one reaction. The, the second reaction that I had, maybe a little similar, but with a different conclusion <laughs> to what you said, me here is like, imagine we're doing something even better than vaping. So we, we come out with something that is addictive, the cool thing to do, but literally there's, there's zero health effects right. other than addiction. Okay. Would I be in favor of making the substance available and have people enjoy it? And that's the sense in which even if something was perfectly healthy, like no health concerns whatsoever, but it's addictive, it takes away that moment of choice because it's addictive. And that's the sense in which I think addiction in and of itself 
is problematic, even if I completely agree with you, Mihir, the faster we can move towards addictive yeah. substances that don't have health side effects, fabulous. I think so. A couple of things. One is your point about this being a cultural moment, I think, is is so true. The branding and the marketing around this particular device yeah captures the kind of adolescent zeitgeist yes. in, in just right. such a perfect way. The device itself, it's beautiful, it's elegant, it's simple. You charge it by plugging it That's into brilliant. your laptop, yeah, which crazy. is brilliant. They're <laughs> yeah. about to release an Android app that goes with it. Yeah. There are these flavors. It's so Instagrammable, Snapchatable. Yeah. You know, it's so you can go onto just about any kind of social media and you will just see kids essentially advertising the product to yeah. one another. So I think you're right about that. I think your second point about imagine a perfect version of this thing where there's no harm other than addiction. And then the question is, should we be troubled by that? And my answer to that, I am. <laughs> I'm not you troubled. Are I am troubled. You, you are yeah. troubled. I, I am yeah. troubled. Yeah. Because one of the interesting ironies about Juul specifically, but vaping more generally, is that on the one hand, to your point, here, it's going to save. You know, if you it's could, huge. It's like 1,300 people a day. 1,300 people a day die from smoking. On the other hand, what you're taking is a generation of young people who have no intention of smoking. And in fact, most of them would say smoking is disgusting. And you're teaching them a new habit. And well, so how do you sort of balance those two things? I think this is a really, really hard question. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, we laud business models where consumers get locked in and there are switching costs. And we talk about yeah. why sticky consumers is great. And in a world where there's nothing self-destructive, there's literally – mm -hmm. your, your mm -hmm. hypothetical yeah. is, is useful. Yeah. And by the way, I don't think there's that much on the vaping side that is that harmful as, I, as far as I can tell. I mean there's some popcorn lung stuff, but it doesn't sound real. Yeah. And so there's a lot of I agree with faux science going on there. You know, I'm sure we've taught all – we've all taught cases where we say like, look, you can lock in the consumer and this is like – Locking know. in the consumer? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. like what is it that's really going on here that's substantively different? And I, I think what addiction is that's different is there's an irrational – component to it. But there's a physical component as well. I'm sorry, you're right. There's a whole physiological response that you're triggering as well. But, you know, we also know that's true for iPhones. We know that there's an addiction to iPhones and it's got a physiological basis and there are serotonin hits that you get from these things. Once you go into this land of we can't let people involuntarily like our product, <laughs> you know, that's a crazy place to end up. Mm -hmm. And so my greater fear is that this is just an incredible technology and that we should proliferate it now, arguably, the teens are a problem, but, man, we should be proliferating this technology everywhere we can. How about regret as a yardstick? So you asked about company responsibility. And one way to think about the responsibility of companies, if I know I get consumers to consume something, like I provide some experience that seems appealing in the moment, and then to know whether or not that is really okay or not, use the consumer's regret, right? When you look back and you say, boy, like it happened again, I did it, I don't feel good, I don't feel good about myself, I don't feel good about that decision. That to me feels different from I'm collecting frequent flyer miles on some airline and so I can't really switch easily. Well, do you regret checking your phone that much? I mean, a lot of people regret checking their phone that much. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's an issue. 
And so the producer of the iPhone should take that into account? So I think there's a case to be made that if you build and change products over time, I think in particular on social media, mm -hmm. I think you can now make an argument that the companies are systematically investing in ways uh -huh. to make their products more addictive. And I think that's problematic. But again, in all these other situations, antidepressants is an interesting example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are now addicted to antidepressants. Yeah. And it's a serious problem for some people. But antidepressants are fantastic for a whole set of people. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. and I'm really worried about producers self-regulating in some ways, which is, man, if you create too addictive an experience, we're worried about that. So this New Yorker article mm -hmm. about vaping, it included an interview with this guy, Jonathan Winnikoff. Mm -hmm. he's, at, <laughs> yeah. he's a pediatrician at Mass General <laughs> yeah. Hospital, and he's a faculty at Harvard yeah. Medical School. Yeah. He called it a massive public health disaster that we are letting Kids happen right before our eyes. And some and of our senator, right? Some she, of the, yes, she's Warren active. is. Yes. And there are a lot of states who are imposing massive taxes, yeah. like 50% taxes on vaping, yeah. Yeah. trying to shut it down. And yeah. it's obviously moving just to different exactly, areas. Exactly. I mean, the weird thing to me about this product is the ideal treatment would be for young buyers, we'd like tax the hell out of it. And for older smokers, we'd subsidize it like crazy. Right? I mean, we, would, we should be giving this away. That's the health right? policy. I mean, or alternatively, we should craft marketing messages that are really targeted older people yeah. um, and completely against younger people. And you look at Instagram, and it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. Right? It has everything around this youth culture. Yeah. Even if you're an older smoker, you look at it and go, oh, my God, this product's not for me. Exactly. In fact, if kids see someone older vaping, they think it's completely weird. That's like, like yeah. it's just so. That's yeah. like you like, buying a skateboard and yeah, going just, off to Mom, the park. No, it's like no, no. or dad, <laughs> no. I have to say, as a parent, you know, on the one hand, I intellectually agree with everything we've just said. On the other hand, there's something disturbing when I see 13 year olds vape. It's just very disturbing, and I think as we see these things proliferate. So, for example, there are people who sneak their vapes and vape on planes. You know, or in restaurants or in public spaces or in, you know, in all the places that we've conditioned ourselves to think that's not a good thing. Yeah. We're going to just start to see it mm -hmm. in airports, everywhere we is go. Is there any and smell or anything? There is an odor, but it's more, it's like candy because there are different flavors. So Not just for the mango. user, but for the surrounding people? Yeah, but it's very subtle. And yeah. so the thing is to exhale into your shirt or into your sleeve or something. There's very little smoke. There's a little There's bit, but not too much. There's got to be a business where you get special clothing that facilitates <laughs> the vaping in public places. Yeah. Okay, guys, I have a pick for you. What is it? <laughs> oh, I'm ready. <laughs> so I'm a basketball fan. I'm an NBA basketball fan. I don't watch much baseball. I watch a little football, but I really love basketball. And this NBA season has been one of the funnest seasons around. So I have a book. It's called Basketball and Other Things. It's by a guy named Shea Serrano. And New York Times bestseller, by the way. Oh. You should read it for two reasons. One, the book is comprised of 33 questions about basketball. In each chapter answers one of these questions, but they're not your typical questions. It's not like who was better, Magic Johnson or Larry Bird. Yeah. These are really fun questions. Like, like what? Like which version of Michael Jordan was the best version of Michael <laughs> Jordan? <laughs> like what is the most disrespectful kind of dunk? 
<laughs> oh, know? nice. I mean, just really fun. It is hilarious. But the second reason, I think he has one of the most interesting pop culture voices around, just his voice. It's not even his writing, but the way he weaves in pop culture references and hmm. so witty. He's great on Twitter. You should follow him on Twitter as well. Nice. The name again is? Uh, it's called Basketball and Other Things. If you follow basketball, <laughs> this is just the thing to get you in the mood. So that's my recommendation. Good. Perfect. Felix. My recommendation is actually a service that I used a little while ago and then stopped. And I, now I'm back and started using Spotify Radio again. Hmm. And my first experience was so disappointing because you might remember Pandora was sort of the company, you know. Yeah, that, yeah invented the algorithms and the whole classification of music. And then even though, you know, Spotify was fabulous for many other things, when you used the radio, it was just not as good. What's more irritating than, <laughs> than a radio picking the wrong kind of song? It didn't understand what the 60s were all. So it was like everything with it was basically wrong. Now I went back and I was like totally surprised. And I guess in part... There's sort of the AI that gets better, that yeah. gets faster, that gets more responsive, and it's a it's a really it's a really different experience. So, what's your favorite genre? Oh, I'm right now. I'm into Turkish pop music. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't want to read a whole book about Turkish pop music, but the radio just delivers exactly what I need. A little violin, a little <laughs> melancholy. Wait, Turkish pop music has Wait, don't ask melancholy. Him a oh, oh, <laughs> sorry. Turkish pop music is like the pinnacle you asked of. Him a follow up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a mistake. I apologize. <laughs> okay, Mihir, what do you have? I'm going to talk about David Byrne, who is the lead singer from Talking Heads. Talking Heads is the band I think as being. He's still making music. Not only is he still making music, young me, it's incredible music. Really? He's championed world music. In fact, I would argue that some he of his had solo this stuff. Latin American phase. Right? He had a Latin American phase. I thought he was biking all the time. He's wasn't doing he? that too. He is a true Renaissance man. I mean, I think he's amazing. <laughs> I mean, he's making music and he's biking. That's two things. That's not exactly a Renaissance. Type of okay, he championed world music. Okay. He's okay. a writer. Okay. Anyways, I love this guy. So he's come out with a recent new album. It's called American Utopia. And the lead song is called Everyone's Coming to My House. And he performed it on Stephen Colbert. Huh. And it is mm -hmm. that video of him performing on Stephen Colbert. It's called okay. Everyone's Coming to My House. That is one of the most catchy, fantastic yeah. songs I've heard in Does so long. Is he a full band? Oh, my God. And it's all this weird people. And they're oh. marching around the stage. And it's, you know, he really pioneered. With Stop Making Sense. Stop Making Sense. With that the kind the of theater of yeah. the theater of those uh, shows. And this has got incredible theater to that show. Wow. Um, yeah. So David Byrne, uh, everyone's coming to my house, especially the version on Stephen Colbert. I think he's completely inspiring as an artist who's reinvented himself over whatever, 40 plus 50 years. Yeah. Um, I think he's absolutely fantastic. Renaissance man. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for Thank listening. You. This is HBS After Hours.
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 